Stephen, thank you very much for sitting with me. I'm excited to have a ESG, a practical ESG conversation with you today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course. Uh, now, before we get started, please introduce yourself. So I am Senior Advisor for the Investments and Wealth Institute, but also Executive Director for the Financial Planning Review, Director of the Masters of Science in Finance and Investment Management at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, and an Associate Professor there as well. There are a lot of titles. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, you wear many hats, which is very impressive. Um, now, I attended your presentation yesterday where you spoke about ESG, but more importantly, the practicality of ESG and how to kind of implement it in a way that works for clients and advisors instead of having like a very fluffy, high-level overview that we often get with ESG. So can you speak a bit about your work? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that fluffy, high-level overview you talk about is part of the challenge people have getting their arms wrapped around what this means. And the reality is it means different things to different people. Um, and I think the practical response to that is um, trying to take the time to have a structured conversation with clients about what ESG investing really means to them. And it can mean a lot of different things or it could mean a focus on one or a few things. From a practical perspective, we would suggest that um, it's a lot easier to address if we narrow the field down to a small number of important priorities. Mm -hmm. And once we've got that narrowed down, it's important as well to help lead the client through a conversation about how to prioritize those and, and what does it really mean. So there's a lot of uh, debate in the marketplace about whether ESG investing leads to superior adjusted returns or whether you got to give something up uh, on the return side in order to pursue these non-financial goals. Um, but whether we actually have to give something up or not, it's important to know from the client perspective, would they do it? Would they give something up if they had to? And if so, how much? And that's essentially a way to quantify the prioritization they have around these non-traditional or non-financial ESG objectives. And... Um, that ends up forming the foundation for everything else that follows, whether it's portfolio reporting or performance metrics. That, that makes sense. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking, is, is ESG cyclical? So, for instance, we, we saw in the past few years, you know, 2020, uh, part of 2021, it performed exceptionally well. But the markets were very green and technology was booming, like it just amazing returns. Um, so did, did all of those factors contribute to ESG uh, securities perform, outperforming or performing very well? And now that the market has become a bit more depressed, we're seeing that the ESG is also taking a hit. So ESG is cyclical in a couple of different ways. And uh, so one way is it's cyclical from a product market perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, um, 
there's any number of products that become booms and busts over time. So green energy is a, a, a cyclical business like anything else. And right now it's in, in an ascension phase. Um, and there's a lot of other business elements to ESG investing that can follow those traditional business cycles that we're so familiar with. But you also touched on something that um, relates kind of more to um, market efficiency and at what point does a market price these factors in. And we have some evidence uh, around that effect uh, with respect to governance, which we've been tracking for a much longer period of time. And um, Elroy Dimson, who's one of my co-authors at the University of Cambridge, um, looked at what the returns were to investing in portfolio with strong governance criteria. And it turns out that if you were doing that in the 90s, um, into the mid 2000s, um, you were able to earn excess risk adjusted returns, yeah. uh, which is a delightful thing. But that's about the time when the market started to come to the realization that, hey, these governance factors are important. And once they got priced in, then they were no longer providing the excess risk adjusted returns that got them to the point that those factors were priced in. And so then they looked at what the evidence was post mid 2000s. And in fact, then those ESG factors were no longer priced in returns, but they were priced in the valuations. So that's another kind of cyclicality in addition to the product market cyclicality. Right, so this is a very interesting, but also I feel complex area especially for advisors where um, clients have access to so much now. They have real-time data. They have access to so much information. So, you know, and a lot of them are quite passionate, obviously, right? And they, they want to do what's best for themselves, for their families, for the world, you know, preserve the earth for the next generations. And they're constantly just bombarded with ESG, ESG. So naturally, they go to their advisor and they're like, okay, I you know, I'm passionate about this, I want to help, how, how do I do it? How do I invest to be ESG compliant? And once you get there, it becomes very murky. So how do you, like, what are you seeing from the advisor's perspective and how can they navigate this to again, be a very practical approach? So um, one thing to bear in mind as we address this question is that, you know, we've been wrestling with concepts of risk and return around traditional investing for a hundred years. And those concepts are now much more well-developed, uh, but there's not uniformity around how those are viewed, um, even in the marketplace today. ESG investing is much younger than that. So we can't expect it to be as mature um, and um, but we can expect it to mature over time and that goes for the data that you talk about as much as anything else so um, what uh, my my belief is that ESG ratings are very noisy okay there's not a lot of agreement among different ESG rating providers um, Whereas if you were doing uh, credit ratings across the different rating agencies, you'd, you'd observe near perfect correlation, um, but you don't see that at all. There's almost no correlation in 
ESG realm. And why is that? Multitude of reasons. One is they're all measuring different things. Um, Sustainalytics is measuring things from a business risk perspective. MSCI is measuring things uh, using benchmarks within an industry. And so the criteria are different from one industry to the next. They use different data to come up with those judgments. The judgments are subjective. And then they weight those different elements very differently as they assemble them into different ratings. So um, for most people, the ESG ratings as an output are nearly useless bit of a strong statement, but I think the data that go into them can be useful. And that goes back to the point of narrowing your interest down. What is it that I'm really interested in achieving with my investment program? Maybe it's uh, water purity, and then I can go and find good data on water purity. If it's carbon emissions, I can go find better data on carbon emissions. Um, but um, I think getting at the individual data elements is a better strategy than trying to aggregate those elements together. Right, so being thematic instead of just throwing a broad net out there and just trying to catch ESG is, I suppose, the more accurate and an approach that will get you better results and help you achieve what you are trying to achieve when you have that set objective of, okay, I want clean water. Um, you know, for this particular region or just overall for the world, that's going to lead you to better than the, I just want to see the planet. Right? I, I think you've articulated it very well. And if you don't mind, I'll borrow that one in the future. No, please help yourself. <laughs> um, now, you touched on ESG ratings. And this is something that I've been looking at myself for a while as well, because I find it confusing too. And then Obviously, there's a lot of noise out there, and one of the most prominent people uh, who likes to have his voice heard is Elon Musk. So I, and I think that some of the things that he says around this particular topic do have some merit. So like, he was very critical of the fact that Tesla, for instance, did not have a very high ESG rating when he essentially single-handedly pioneered a new way, you know, re uh, revolutionized the way that we travel, um, and it is... You know, you can debate whether it's better because obviously the the batteries and where they're sourced from and what happens to them afterwards is an issue, but you're doing less drilling. So, uh, so how did those two compete against each other? And everyone was saying, obviously, you know, this is the way forward because everyone's doing EV vehicles now, pretty much every maker out there. Uh, but Tesla had a very, didn't have a very favorable rating. So he was very critical of that. And he said, how can you not give me a good ESG rating? What are your thoughts on that? Like, how is it that companies that we perceive as very green are not getting these ratings that you would think they would get? It, it, uh, so, first of all, I think Elon might be, have a stronger argument if he were talking about his rating as an entrepreneur, maybe <laughs> even as a CEO. His, his ESG rating is an entirely separate matter altogether. Clearly, the way we transport ourselves is going to fundamentally change from a technological perspective. Whether or not it's more environmentally friendly is uh, really an example of what we were talking about before is how we come up with these ratings. Because if we look at 
uh, Tesla's Scope 1 emissions, which is those emissions they create from the actual manufacturing of the vehicles um, that might be actually somewhat modest, but there's a carbon footprint there. And then we can think about, okay, well, what about the emissions that come from sourcing? You mentioned um, uh, sourcing, but it's not just sourcing the batteries, it's sourcing the energy that goes in the battery. Right. And so an electric vehicle in China is far less environmentally friendly because that power comes from coal than an environmental vehicle in Toronto, which is uh, powered to a large extent by hydro. So um, a lot of it's contextual and depends on how much you want to credit or penalize an entity for upstream or downstream effects. Another sort of more general example is that um, the carbon emissions are categorized um, scope one direct, scope two, those emissions that are created from your inputs upstream, and scope three, those emissions that are created uh, uh, downstream from your customers using your product. Mm. Scope three admission, uh, emissions account for 90% of total carbon emissions and are the most difficult to estimate. So 90% of what we're trying to get our arms wrapped around is extremely amorphous and subject to judgment, um, not really science. Second thing to consider is if 90% of the total emissions are driven, particularly for petroleum companies, by customers using the petroleum, is it fair that Exxon and Chevron are penalized in their ESG profiles for customers driving? Because if they're, if they're driving Teslas, it's really... Um, you know, they're making the decision. Chevron and Exxon wouldn't be producing any of the oil if people were all driving electric vehicles. So that's a debate. And I don't know that there's a singular right or wrong answer to that. Right. And how you answer that question, though, will drive 90% of how Tesla or any other company is measured on just that one carbon emission dimension. Right. It, it, again, it's a very complex arena with many, many factors that go into it. And to the point that you brought up earlier, which is there doesn't seem to be a consensus among the agencies that are rating, right? Like they're all looking at different things. And so you just, you go online and you assume, oh, you know what? It has a rating of good, fair, bad, awful, right? And it, it could very well be that one is just looking at, you know, very only social issues and one is only looking at governance and one is only focused on environmental instead of having that more holistic picture when it comes to ESG. So, you know, what would your suggestions be to, to fix that issue, the, the ratings issue? Because obviously that's where it's the simplest thing. That's where people would want to go. They would want a simple answer of, okay, is this good or bad so that I can make an appropriate decision without having to, you know, do like 50 hours of research and figuring out every single little uh, piece that goes into creating an accurate rating. Yeah. So uh, I'm not convinced it's a problem 
that needs to be solved. Uh, I don't know that the world would be any better if all the ESG rating agencies had perfect alignment on how they rated Tesla, Facebook, or any other company. Um, in fact, um, I like the fact that it's all different because that's exactly what the field is. Um, some environmentalists like nuclear power as a solution to climate change. Other environmentalists view nuclear power as an abomination. <laughs> and so I don't know who's right in that debate, right. um, but I know that it's not clear what the right answer is. And I don't think we should impose that expectation on any of these ESG issues. But so to your point, what's a better way? Um, it may not be perfect alignment in the ESG rating, but rather than selling and marketing the bottom line overall ESG rating, maybe what they do is do a better job of marketing and selling the constituent components of that, where I'm going to get the best water quality data from one provider, I'm going to get the best carbon emission data from another provider, I'm going to get the best you know, governance data from somebody else. And that provides a way for the rating agencies to differentiate themselves. And it also eliminates the duplication of effort that corporate issuers have to have by providing everything to every ESG rating provider. Right. Well, so we have a survey in market called our Voice of the Advisor survey. And what we've been, this is our third year, and what we've been hearing is that Clients are asking about ESG, so obviously advisors want to provide ESG, right? They want to be able to fulfill those demands. But back to that issue of how do you practically do it and how do you have it be as accurate as possible? So if, if you had clear marketing from these different agencies that say, hey, this rating is based solely on these three things, like this is all that we're looking at and we looked at this and it gave us this rating, then I would feel that advisors at least have somewhat of a decent starting point in order to go and start, you know, doing their own research and having these discussions with clients. But that's not currently what's happening, which is what makes it such a dis difficult task, even if they want to provide these services. So back to that pro practicality approach that, you know, you did a great job explaining yesterday. Um, like how, how sh should they get started? Really? Like what can they do? Like obviously uh, there, you mentioned yesterday that there's a financial versus non-financial approach, right? Like, what are the benefits? What are they looking for? Can you explain that a bit for our audience and how you feel it, it provides benefit, but also is perhaps the right way of doing things? So, um, I think what advisors can do is pick up from that point about if they can guide the client through a conversation to hone in on what their objectives are, hopefully narrow that scope, scope of issues like we talked about. The next step would then be to understand what success looks like. So what combination of risk, return, and responsibility, so we call this R cubed, the three R's, um, what combination of those three looks like success. And um, that ends up, and, and you can do that 
with ad hoc examples. Is this amount of return and this amount of ESG better than this amount of return and that amount of ESG? And once you've identified what that trade-off is, you know what success looks like and you can measure yourself against that level of success. But in order to do that, we do need to have some kind of underlying data and measurement for these non-financial objectives. That makes sense. Um, now, before we wrap up, what do you see for 2023 and beyond in the space? So I don't think ESG is going away. It has in you know recent months, I think, taken a few uh, bullets and hits mm -hmm. from state pension funds and, and, and the anti-woke movement and the like. Um, uh, but I just think that's part of the natural evolution. I think increasingly advisors are going to become more well-versed in the various ESG issues. Um, but I don't expect it to ever supplant the primary reason why investors take their money and uh, defer their consumption in the hopes to make it grow more in the future. I think ultimately risk and return is going to be the thing we end up delivering. But if it's done exclusively into the um, in isolation from these environmental and social issues, I think we're missing an opportunity to really meet clients where they're at. Right. Well, it sounds like ESG is going through some trials and tribulations and it's going to have to prove itself uh, and make it through this. I, I could not agree more because if we don't apply the same kind of rigor and analysis to ESG investing that we've applied over the decades to traditional investing, people will not have confidence and faith in it. And it's going to end up withering and dying in a field of unfulfilled expectations. I, I completely agree with that. It definitely needs to prove itself as every other theory uh, and model out there has had to do. Uh, Stephen, this has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you for chatting with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course.